Right, First Corinthians 11. Um, it's Father's Day. I've been thinking about my dad, the church I grew up in, and in relation to this text. And I was thinking, the family I grew up in was just a, a normal family, mom and dad. Uh, and we pretty much had a happy home growing up in. wasn't always happy, but generally uh, enjoyable. I was glad for it, thankful for it. Uh, my parents loved each other. And even when they weren't expressing their love as lovingly. They didn't hold on to it. They forgave each other. It was a good home to grow up in. And one of the things that was good about our home is it took uh, our lives in the church seriously. Our church met every Sunday morning, as ours does, and every Sunday evening. We were there for both. And I was talking with a few of you who decided to play cards on Sunday. We did the same thing. We go to church Sunday morning. Go to grandma and grandpa's afterwards for coffee and uh, treats and then uh, home and then Sunday evening to church and then after church with a neighbor, friends, and a few other families, we'd gather and play euchre and other card games. It was really enjoyable. Uh, One of the things I do remember about our church, our church was a simple church. There was nothing like high churchy about it. It was was just a church. I don't remember ever any drums or guitars, really just an organ and uh, a song leader, I think maybe even the pastor was a song leader. I don't know if my mom, mom texted me, I don't remember. Um, uh, and, and, but what I remember about my mom and dad in worship is that they didn't make a big deal out of this. It was really just the, the way they did it. Um, church was a big deal. It was different than the rest of the week. And again, they didn't talk about that. They didn't explain it, but the way we dressed was different for Sunday. The expectations my parents had on us as children and our behavior, there was even something different about that. We got to look if we weren't, and my dad would pinch you right here. Yeah, and it it would hurt if I was out of order. Um, Irreverence wasn't tolerated. There was a reverence Again, my dad didn't make a big deal out of it. It wasn't talked about. It was just there. And I appreciate it. It it was good. And my parents sang. Particularly, I remember my mom. I remember a few times standing next to my mom singing, trying to match her, her volume and her pitch. And what a delight it was to see my mom. And we were in a farming community. Um... I think almost all of the families in our church were farmers. At one time, the church was about exactly the same size as this church. Uh, and so these were farming people. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is our text is about all of that. It's about men and women at worship and the great impact that can have on life in the world. And so sometimes... If you're a parent, what do your kids need? What do they need from you? If you're a dad, it's Father's Day. What do your kids need from you? I think they just need a normal, happy home that takes God with some unspoken reverence. I think that's about it. It's, I think another way to say it is just faithfulness, just normal, unpretentious, not making a big deal out of it, forgiving when sin occurs kind of home. I think that's what this text is getting at is 
men being men, women being women, particularly in worship. And I grew up with that, and it was wonderful. I didn't think about it then, but I think about it a lot now. I think about it all the time now. And I think about it now in that our world is running, um, all right, my mom says, morning service pastor-led, evening service people in the congregation-led songs. I remember that. We actually took requests in the evening service, your favorite hymn. That was cool. And I'd always come prepared. Um, anyways, I, I think about that in light of the culture we live in. There is just, for decades now, like a couple generations, a full court press against those things, against guys being guys and gals being gals and families worshiping. Like that is what our culture is set against and working against. And here we are in a text that combines both of these things and holds them out to us and says, just do this. Just be faithful here. So how do you respond in a world going through what our world is going through right now? Well, dads be dads and moms be moms and men be men and women be women and worship God with reverence. You want to change the world, let's just do that. Let's just do that. That's it. There's, there's nothing more to do. That's it. That's faithfulness. And uh, I find it very refreshing, the simplicity of God's call to us as a church. I find it very refreshing to be a part of our church that I think gets this. All right, so as we come to our text, we come to a text that combines the worship of the triune God with the doctrine of male and female. How to be men at worship, how to be women at worship. So this text has my attention. It's really grabbed me. And honestly, what, what, what's mostly grabbed me from this text isn't its teaching on men and women, on men being the heads and women submitting and head coverings. That, that's grabbed me in the sense of what's going on here. But what's really grabbed me is what's going on in this text regarding worship regarding the gathering of local church. What I want to do is, I want to take just a bit of time to review the past two sermons and try to make clear uh, regarding the issue of head coverings. Uh, Some of you have communicated to me that I've been as clear as mud so far. In fact, one thought I said exactly the opposite of what I said. And I, I don't think it's only uh, that person. So I want to clarify that. And then I I want to draw out a few uh, what I think are just glorious, awesome realities in this text of worship that have really been impactful in my heart. So that's that. Let me read again. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. And then uh, summarize the past couple of sermons and then worship. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head because of the same as if her head was shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, 
then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to, or a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. My soul, O God, our souls long for your salvation, and so teach us to hope in your word. Our eyes look for the promise of your son's coming. And so, God, we ask, when will you comfort us? We in our lives suffer We become like smoke, and yet we don't want to forget your statutes. So how long must we endure? When will you judge those who persecute your people? This world digs pitfalls for your people. They do not live according to your word. But all of your commandments are sure, but this world persecutes us with lies, so help us, O God. They try to make an end of us, but we will not forsake your precepts. And so, God, in your steadfast love, give us life, that we may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so far, uh, this is the fourth sermon on this text. Five weeks ago, I think, or four weeks ago, I did just an overview of it all. Uh, And there we saw that the central reality in this text is the glory of God. That's what's going on here is how do we glorify God in the gathering of the local church? And he's relating that specifically to how men do it and how women do it and that specifically to uh, creation order. And since there's a specific ordering in creation and men are the glory and image of God in verse 7 and women are the glory of men, there should be no glory uncovered in worship but God's. So that's what's going on in this text. That's the central heart behind it is God's glory and worship. And so I hope, of course, that that's uh, our determination when we come to worship, to glorify God. And that whatever God has for us in it, we'd be willing to do it because it's about the glory of God. In the second sermon, then I just focused on verse 2, particularly this, maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And to be clear, tradition here isn't just kind of customary practice in the church. Tradition here is the apostolic teaching. It's God's word. This, this word handed down, handed over. This is what the apostles did. The apostle delivered to us the reality of Christ's death and resurrection and all of the teachings along with it. And he's commending them for maintaining those. And he has two in particular that he's going to discuss in this chapter. Head coverings and the Lord's Supper. He has some commendation it looks like in the issue of head coverings although there seems to be some disputing beginning in verse 16 some contentiousness 
And so he wants to firm up the foundation underneath that teaching. And then in the Lord's Supper, as we'll see probably this fall, um, he doesn't have praise for them. <laughs> They're not holding firm to the apostles' tradition, the apostles' teaching regarding the Lord's Supper. So that was the second sermon. Then the third sermon, last week, I tried to just lay out the teaching for head covering in this chapter. And that's what I want to do now. I just want to summarize that for you. So as I've said, the context here is local turban worship. More on that in a moment. And thus, the first thing to say here is the command to head covering only applies there. I want to make sure that we're clear there. There has in church history and Christian history that's been applied outside the church. I don't see any reason for that since the context of these verses is just the gathering of the local church. Right? That's, that's the only place this would apply. Okay? Second, as I've just said, the central issue in these verses is a woman covering her head in worship. The central reasons giving for that or the central reason is verse 3. So verse 3 is the underlying reason in this verse. And it goes to creation order. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is, her, is, is man. And the head of Christ is God. So you have God, Christ, man, woman, according to creation order. Though, again, we have to continually remember what he gets to later on uh, in verse 11, particularly verses 11 and 12. This is not in ordering of importance. This is not an ordering of value. This is not an ordering, ordering of worth or dignity. You and I, male and female, are completely uh, of the same equal value worth created in God's image. And yet, there is an ordering, and because of that ordering in worship, a woman since she is the glory of man and since her hair is her glory, is to conceal, is to cover her glory, both her hair and the glory of man in worship. So, what do you do with that? First, you should consider your heart. Men, do you love your wives? That's what we talked about last week. Men, do you love your wives? Are you considerate toward them? Are you kind are you providing for them? Are you praying with and for them? Does your wife know that there is nothing so precious in your life other than your Savior than her? Okay. And young women, as you look for a husband, that's what you're looking for. A man who gives you attention, a man who is a man, a man who will care for you, a man who works hard. And then women, before you would consider putting on a head covering, how's your heart towards your husband? Are you treating him as your head? Are you treating him with respect? Do you, as we read in Scripture, have a gentle and submissive spirit towards him? So then the covering is a symbol of that reality. A covering communicates the reality of how we're living in our marriages. Communicates the reality of our God-given 
sex. That's the point of it. We also have verse 10 because of the angels. I want to cover that more in detail in a moment. So we're given the reason in verse 3 for the creation order for head covering. Then a second reason is verse 10 because of the angels. And again, Paul doesn't go into like unpacking what he means there. He just says it. I said last week there's some ambiguity in this text. What do angels have to do with it? Paul doesn't say. He just says there's angels present, so cover. That's it. There's an awesome reality going on here. And somehow it scandalizes angels. I don't know how. When the sexes are disordered in worship. So, what do we do with the head covering? That's the main question. What is it? Again, as I said last week, there are two understandings of this that I think do justice to this text. The first is that the covering itself is just the hair. Okay? Verse 15 is where you would see that most clearly. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so then the issue in this text, if that's true, isn't an extra veil or scarf or something like that. It says the woman's hair is her covering. So the issue is that a woman wears her hair as a woman, not as a man. And that a man wears his hair as a man and not as a woman. So the issue is externally communicating the sex that God has given you. You being obedient to your sex. And that's true whether that's the issue here or not. That's just true, right? That's, that's true. And so when we see men who wear their hair in a womanish way, it is a disobedience to the sex God had given you in conception. Or if you see a woman wearing her hair in a mannish way. It's a disobedience to the sex God has given at conception. And for those of you either on live stream or here in person who are hearing something like that, um, that's meant lovingly. Because there is nothing so damaging to a person as to go against their sex. There's a reason, statistically, that women are much more unhappy in our day than they were, say, 30 or 40 years ago. So there's a reason men are so frustrated and angry today. It's this reason. Okay, so that's one understanding. I don't believe, to say it very clearly, that hair is the covering here. I, I think this text reads more plainly as if there's an extra artificial covering on a woman's head here. I see that most plainly in verses 4 and 5 and 6. There's something in addition to the hair. Otherwise, why would a woman have to shave her hair? And so I see that most clearly here. And then in church history, the interpretation has been a covering of something other than the hair. All right, so what do we do with that? How do you actually implement it? That's what you all want me to say, right? And as I have said, (laughs) 
because of the ambiguities in this text, because as he says in verse 16, it was the practice in the churches in his day, and because it is no longer the practice in our churches today, you will not ever hear me say in our church, if you're going to be a woman in our church, you need to have a head covering on. Okay? I, I, I don't believe this text, written as it is, lends itself to that kind of force. As I said before, this doctrine of head covering is, is not a first tier, second tier. It might not even be third. If you say, I want to worship God, but I don't think he's triune, I, I will say, you can't worship here without us disciplining you for that. If you want to say, I think Jesus is a really good man, but he's not God, I will say, you cannot be a member of this church. If you say, I think we are saved by faith and by taking the Lord's Supper or and by baptism or and by circumcision, I will say you're a heretic. You're holding to another gospel and you need to repent or you will not receive eternal life. But if you say, in order to be a godly woman, you need to wear a head covering, I will say, uh, no. Maybe, but you would be very careful and check your heart there. So if you were to come to me in private and say as a woman or as a couple, should my wife wear something? Should I wear a head covering? I would want to go through the text with you and ask you what it means here. I would want to ask you of your marriage and how you're doing. I would want to... Want to want to ask you, how are you going to look at other women who don't? And then I would say, yeah, you should wear a covering. Looks like this test is telling you to. If you came to me and said, hey, I listened to your sermons, I actually do think sincerely that hair is the covering, I would want you to explain it to me. And then I would say, Praise the Lord. How, how are you submitting to your husband? Husband, how are you loving and leading your wife? And I, that, that, that's where I would go with it. I would want us to be careful in how we think about each other here. And, and I hope that some of you do cover. And I hope that those of you who don't and those of you who do love each other and think the best of each other, and I hope we don't make a big issue out of this. Is that fair? Is that clear? Er? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. So if you want some more guidance on this, please come and talk to us as elders. If you would like to wrestle this through, as I said, I think this is a great opportunity for husbands to take the lead, to open up Scripture. And I hope you as a wife, if your husband asks you to wear a covering, that you would be willing, or as a daughter. Okay, let's now turn to worship, because that, that's what's at 
the heart of this text. I mean, this text is about a woman's covering, but it's in worship. One of the questions I did get is, where do you see worship in this? Where do you, where do you see worship? Well, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, the context there too is worship in a sense. Pagan worship. Meat sacrifice to idols, to pagan worship feasts. Can we eat that in our homes? Can we eat that at somebody else's home? Paul says, yeah. No questions of conscience. Everything is from the Lord. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Except where you realize that somebody's eating it in still a worshipful way. Then because of their conscience, don't. Now he goes from pagan worship to Christian worship. Goes from pagan worship to Christian worship. See this in verse 16? We have no other practice, no do the churches of God. Context there's worship. We see it in these words pray and prophesy. Here's what one uh, commentator wrote The two verbs, pray and prophesy, make it certain that the problem has to do with the assembly at worship. One may pray privately, but not so with prophecy. This was the primary form of speech directed toward the community for its edification and encouragement. So prophecy here, again, as I said last week, doesn't intend telling the future. It intends speaking the word of God for the edification, for the encouragement, for the correction of the people. The two verbs are neither exhaustive nor exclusive, but representative. They point to the two foci of Christian worship, God in prayer and the gathered believers in the speech. Speech that is Godward or humanward, that is praise, prayer, adoration, information, instruction, and exhortation. You might remember if you were part of a neighborhood small group, we were going through Acts 2, and it says that the church gathered for the prayers. That colloquial way of saying that, that little phrase, the prayers, refers to the gathering of the church and worship. There is in the Bible this use of these words to mean just generally worship. Because all of our service of prayer is a service of worship. All of our service of worship is a service of prayer. And what do we do in the service of worship? We prophesy, we preach, we teach, we explain, we encourage, we exhort. Another Commentator says, this is clearly the context of public worship. Paul is talking about the custom of the churches, verse 16. This makes it plain that the restriction the apostle places on the women speaking in the church later in this letter is not an absolute restriction. She may pray or prophesy in the church provided she does so in a way that the apostle stipulates will publicly honor her husband, her head. Right. So when you gather to worship, you're gathering to pray. Godward. You're gathering before the holy, almighty, eternal God to call on Him. That's what we're doing. And you gather to hear the Word of God in the praying, in the singing, in the preaching, to rebuke, to exhort, to correct, to use the language of Second Timothy 4. So that's what we're doing. That's, this, this context is worship. So since we have a text addressing how to worship, let me say a few things about worship that have been really impactful to me, that have my attention. Um, 
I was a biology major at UWL about 20 years ago, and I took uh, the class Developmental Biology. And I remember the professor saying several times throughout the course of the class, we really don't know how this works. We really don't know how a sperm and an egg combine and how one step in the process leads to another step, how certain cells become that and another. We really don't know. It's a mystery. It's a wonder. But, he would say, the more you learn about it, the deeper you go, the more wonderful it becomes. That's why we're taking, he wasn't a Christian, but he was using Christian language. Developmental biology wasn't dull. It was anything but dull. It was wondrous. It was amazing. I think the same thing's true about worship. The more that you understand what's going on, the more that you understand the reality of what we do here on a weekly basis, which just seems something you do all the time, right? You do this kind of things all the time. But the more that we can see behind the curtain, I guess, the deeper you'll consider, I think the more awesome it'll be. So this is something that I've gained from this text. I've, this text has helped me like that. This, is like, this has been like the developmental biology for me. This text has had this impact on me. It surprised me because I didn't think it was about that. So here's a few ways. Verse 3. Verse 3, as I, I've spent hours just reading and thinking about this verse, I, I find it wonderful. First, we see the Trinity at least two members of the Trinity, the head of Christ is God. Boom. Here we have two members of the Trinity, one in authority over the other who submits to him. This is God. This is how it's always been for all eternity. The Son eternally proceeding from the Father and eternally submitting to His Father, obeying the Father. Then I ask myself, okay, if the Father is the head of the Christ, is the head of His Son, what did the Father command the Son to do? What did God the Father from all eternity command His Son to do? What did He do? What did He tell the Son to do? Take on flesh die in our place for our sins. Why? Why did the head of the Son of God tell the Son of God to do this? And why did the Son submit to it? Why? For what purpose? Worship. So you and I could be reconciled to Him. So we could call Him Father and we could gather on the day of His Son's resurrection and worship him. That's why. He sent the son to purchase worshipers whom he would cleanse of all of their blackness, all of their vileness, gifted the righteousness of his precious son so that we might draw near to him. Jesus did it so that we could do this. Jesus did what the Father commanded him to do, submitting even unto death on a cross in Philippians 2, so that you and I could come on Sunday morning 
and be dull. Right? So that we could be unmoved in heart and mind by what's going on here. Doesn't that lend some weight to what we're doing here? Second is the teaching on men and women relating to each other rightly in worship. Really got me thinking. I noted last week that our world boasts of its commitment to diversity when it's in reality lying through its teeth and wants nothing but utter conformity and uniformity. So don't believe our world is committed to diversity. It isn't, because try to be diverse where they don't want you to be diverse and see what happens. You're seeing it. You bow. You must bow. You must conform. But here in worship... In our text, the diversity of men and women is emphasized. It's women, it looks like in this text, are to wear something to show the differences between the sexes. The diversity is illustrated. It's drawn out. It's not hidden. In fact, it looks like in this text, God created it this way for men to be men and women to be women so that we can understand him better. Another way to put it, if you want to look at another angle, in Ephesians 5, uh, in verse 19, speaking of corporate worship, it says one of the things we're supposed to do in corporate worship is speak to each other as we sing to God, to encourage one another. That is, you and I in corporate worship need each other, as I said at the beginning of the service, in order to know God more. So you have then in this text, men and women rightly relating each other in worship. If it was just men here, it would not help us know God. If it was just women here, it would not be as helpful to knowing God. But because we have men and women with all of the glories of a male, with all the glories of a female, different, that helps portray the glory of God better to us. So men, you need the women in worship to know God better. Women, you need the men in worship to know God better. How men and women rightly relate to each other in worship impacts how you view and worship God. Of course, this is true. I saw it in my upbringing. I saw my dad worshiping God. I saw him sing like a man. I saw his facial expressions as of a man. It helped me understand God. I saw my mom do the same thing as a woman. I saw their sexes very distinct. They didn't talk about it. They didn't name it, but it was there in front of me every Sunday for the first, well, twice every Sunday. And I know God better because of it. That's what's going on in this text. So men... It says in verse 7 that you are the image and glory of God to be put on display, uncovered in worship. That's what you're here for. You are to display as men the glory of God here in your worshiping of God. 
and women. When others observe you worshiping the Lord in submission to your husband, seeing in you the son's submission to the father, seeing in you the church's submission to the son, this is part of us seeing the glory of God. And, and, and there's really nothing you have to do to do that. Just be a man here as a man. Be a woman here as a woman. There's, it isn't like, like the way our world is screwing it up is by trying to do something about it. Like if you just want a boy to grow boy, just let him go. He'll, he'll do fine. I mean, just when they're younger, keep pointy things from them for a little while. If you want a woman to grow up as a woman, just, just let her be a woman. Just, just let her go. Our sex is inherent. It's gifted by God. It, it'll happen. But we do need to see examples of it. You need to see examples of it. Young men need to see grown men with their hands up and their fists pumping. They need it. Young women need to see mom beautiful, mom loving, mom singing, mom looking to her Savior in all things. Little girls need to see men. Little boys need to see women. So if you... Have the faith to look at the language in, this ver- in these verses. Look at, look, look at them. You and I have the potential every Sunday to dishonor or honor God. Every man who prays or prophesies his head covered dishonors his head. Which the opposite is true then as well. You can actually honor your head every Sunday. Isn't that glorious? You can actually honor God here. And women, the same language is applied to you. Language of, of disgrace is used here in corporate worship. We can disgrace ourselves and our God on Sunday morning. But the opposite is true as well then. We can glorify. We can grace Him. I hope you see that as a spectacular as God in heaven, you here, can bring Him glory and honor. That's why you're coming, Right? You get to do this. You. And you have a singing part. And you have a praying part. And you have an exhorting part to each other. You. God has given this gift to you. We have this God-given capacity and privilege to bring honor to God every Sunday morning. Doesn't that lend some weight? And then verse 10, the angels. Angels in the letter of Corinthians comes up three times. In chapter 4, verse 9, apostles are a spectacle to the world and to angels. So angels are observing the suffering of the apostles for the gospel. And it's creating a spectacle to them. In 6, 3, we'll judge angels. And now in our 11.10. So one of the often ignored realities that I too often ignore is that there is an entire another unseen realm 
right now as we gather to worship. In Isaiah 6, the angels are gathered around the throne of God. These great angelic creatures, myriads, and they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God. And, and one called to another. That's what's happening here, apparently. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, we come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels in festal gathering. Festal, festive. That's, that's what we're seeing by faith. What's the point? When you enter, gather to worship, there are innumerable multitudes and legions of angels observing that will judge, declaring the holiness of God Almighty in festive gathering. Maybe the best biblical picture of this is the birth of Jesus Christ. What did the shepherds see? A sky on fire with myriads of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Can you hear them? They're watching. Do you see what you can't see? Can you have the faith to see that when you're here? There's more. I'm, I'm out of time. Paul appeals in verse 16 to all the other churches. He does that four times in this letter. Verse, chapter 4, 17, Paul teaches in every church everywhere. 1433, God is not the God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. He begins the letter in verse 2 in chapter 1. Saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus. When we gather on Sunday morning, the thought does often enter my mind that all over the world, on every continent, in every political nation, Thousands of ethnicities gather to worship the triune God. And they all, we all do the same thing together every Sunday. We all pray and we all prophesy. That every church in every place is doing the same thing at just about every time, for time zones considered, together. And Paul appeals to that. For you to think about that in corporate worship. The glory of that. The beauty of that. So summing it up. The worship of the local church. Is an awesome reality beyond your imagining. It's incredible. It's literally supernatural. It's universe wide. The triune God sent his son to purchase worshipers by his blood. The ordering of the sexes indicates how much we need each other. To be who God made us to be in order to honor him. 
and we get to honor him. Angels are present, reminding us of the great unseen reality and the holiness and the glory of God. And we gather, as is normal for all churches all over the world, for all time, as the beloved bride of Christ. And so, here's the application. Love the church. Love her. Love this. Love her shepherds. Love her men. Love her women. Love her poor. Love her embittered. Love her abused. I love her orphaned. Love her. That's what Paul's writing for, right? That's the point of this, that we could be well-ordered so that we can love her. How are you going to do that? How are you going to love this, us, you? How's your heart towards her? Can you say you love God and not love her? Can you say the love of God is in you if you do not love the people that God sent his son to die for, that he elected before all eternity? Do you love her? Let's pray. I praise you for your bride. David sings that he was glad when it was said unto him that he gets to gather with your people. I, I get it. Praise you for this wondrous reality. Help us to have faith to see it, to have even more faith to love it, because it is hard for us in our pride and stubbornness and selfishness and on and on. God, uh, we are your blood-bought people that you purchased from every tribe and language and people and nation to gather unto you, male and female, to worship you, even here, even now. And so, God, may we grow in that. May we grow in delight of you and delight for your people. May you help us to be men at worship and women at worship, and so bring you greater honor and glory. And so, God, may all glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen.